Uh, it's good to be back with you all. As Frank uh, indicated, I've, I've been here a number of times now, four, four or five, and it's always uh, a privilege and a pleasure um, to be here. I actually I was hoping to bring my oldest son with me. Uh, he asked if he could come, and uh, I, I would have been happy to bring him, but unfortunately my wife and my other kids are sick, so I, I told him that um, he would be most helpful uh, at home to help uh, help his mother. So maybe next time I'll have some uh, some other uh, people in tow. Um, today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter eight. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter eight. And as you're doing that, uh, just a few questions to think about. Um, what what we're going to be looking at today is we consider what God has uh, to teach us from the from the Gospel of Luke. Is, uh, is how Jesus treats us differently. Uh, perhaps if you've um, lived as a Christian for any length of time, you sort of looked around, uh, perhaps in church or Bible study or prayer group, and you sort of looked at the lives that other Christians have, and you've wondered, why is Jesus treating me differently than he's treating others, right? We're not here to consider the question of why do good things happen to bad people or why do bad things happen to good people. Um, that's a separate question, right? What, what I want us to think about today is why do different things happen to good people, right? To, to Christians. Why does Jesus bless some Christians in some ways and other Christians either, either in other ways or perhaps uh, he doesn't seem to bless them. <clears throat> and so, for example, if you're, you know, if you're a young child, you might uh, think, why is it that my sibling got a, a particular Christmas present that, that, that I really wanted and I got a Christmas present that I wasn't really excited about? Or why, why did God provide uh, my, my sibling a, a special friend and I don't seem to have any friends? Or if you're a little bit older, you might ask, if you're in high school, you know, why, why does my best friend have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Or why did they get the starting spot on the track team or the football team? Or perhaps if you're a little older, you might ask yourself, why did, my, uh, wh why did that other Christian get the scholarship to college that I wanted? Or, or why did they get the internship? Or why did they get uh, the job that they have? Uh, or perhaps even a little bit later, you might ask, why is it uh, that, that I can't find a husband or a wife? I've, I've prayed and i prayed and I, and I do what I can to follow God faithfully, and yet I, I continue um, not to be able to find a spouse, and yet I look at other Christians, and they're happily married. <clears throat> or maybe you are married, and you're, and you're struggling with infertility. You're, you're trying to have children, and, uh, and you and your spouse can't seem to get pregnant, and yet other Christians don't seem to have any troubles. Or perhaps um, you're dealing with uh, aging uh, and, and, and uh, sort of ill parents and or perhaps you are uh, sort of one of the ones who's suffering with, with health afflictions and difficulties. And you're looking around at, at other Christians and you're asking yourself, why is it that God is blessing them in particular ways that he doesn't seem to be blessing me? Why am I dealing with the struggles, the difficulties, the, the trials that I'm dealing with in spite of my faith, in spite of my faithfulness, in spite of my prayers and my, and my attempts to live a, a godly Christian life? Why is God treating me differently? 
Perhaps, on the other hand, you might be on the other side of that. You might have experienced God's blessings in ways that almost make you ashamed and embarrassed when you compare your life to others. And at different times in my own life, I've actually felt on different sides of that, right? There are times when God seems to bless me in ways that make me feel awkward and embarrassed when I, when I talk with my, you know, uh, with my seminary roommate uh, in, in particular. But then there are other times when I, when I struggle with how God is treating me. And what, what we're going to see as we look at our passage <clears throat> is that Jesus treats us differently because he loves us the same. Jesus treats us differently because he loves us the same. He doesn't treat us differently in spite of the fact that he loves us the same. He treats us differently because he loves us the same. And in our passage, we're going to be looking at a story of two, two different women. And there are a lot of similarities between these two women. There's a lot of similarities in the way uh, Luke has, has told us the story of Jesus' interaction with these two women that is meant to, to highlight and, and, and draw attention to the similarities, right? There's a lot of comparisons uh, between these two women, but it's also all meant to highlight and to focus our attention on the differences, on the different ways in which Jesus interacts with these two women. Uh, and as we look at this passage, what we're going to find, the, the, the Bible is not afraid or ashamed to deal with personal, intimate subjects. Uh, if you read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you, you start to see a lot of uh, things show up in, in biblical stories that maybe we'd be uncomfortable talking about. Uh, but... Uh, but that's the Bible, right? It deals with real life. It deals with personal, intimate details. We shouldn't be ashamed uh, or hesitant to talk about those when they come up. Uh, so just fair warning uh, in our text today, we are going to be looking at some uh, uh, subjects that maybe you're, you're not used to hearing from the pulpit. Um, so let's look. Uh, what I'm going to do as I... As I uh, as we look at this passage, I'm not going to read the whole passage and then, and then give the, the sermon as I might usually. Instead, what we're going to do, I'm going to read uh, a verse or two, then we're going to pause, I'm going to comment uh, and, and uh, point out some things from that verse, and then we'll continue on, we'll proceed that way. And I say that just so that you know, like if we get 20 minutes in and we still haven't finished reading the text, that's okay. Uh, because by the time we finish reading, the, the, the passage will be mostly done. I don't want you to, you know, to sort of think like, oh my goodness, we haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. No, I'm sort of weaving the sermon in with the, the reading of the text. Uh, I wouldn't normally do that, but I think it, it works uh, well and it's appropriate for this passage. <clears throat> so we're going uh, to look at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke uh, 8, 40 through 56. And let me pray for the preaching of God's word before we uh, consider what God has to say to us. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for this story. We thank you for your word that you inspired uh, your servant Luke to write uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks that you uh, have given it to us as a, as a trustworthy uh, and true account of how you interacted uh, with these two women. And I pray that our time together, uh, that, that during our time together, you would reveal yourself to us in a way that is encouraging and convicting uh, and that brings us uh, comfort and enthusiasm uh, to continue to pursue a life of faithfulness with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so Luke chapter 8, uh, starting with verse 40. Uh, hear the word of God. 
Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling down at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. All right, we're going to pause there uh, for just a second. Notice Luke has introduced to us several of the characters that are going to be important in this story. Of course, we have Jesus, um, but, uh, but we also have Jairus. Now, Jair- Luke describes Jairus as a ruler, as a ruler of the synagogue. Now, within that society, within Jewish uh, society of the day, what that would have meant was that he was well-respected, within society. He would have been sort of at the top of the social food chain, at the top of the pecking order. Um, Perhaps he would have been just below a a priest or a Pharisee, right? So you've got the priests, you've got the Pharisees, and then you have uh, Jairus. So very, very well-respected. He would have been believed to be someone who had a good relationship with God. Uh, He probably would have been looked at as someone with strong faith who is striving earnestly to obey the law, who probably studied uh, God's word regularly. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so he would have been considered to have been someone close to God, right? Someone with a good, strong, solid relationship with God. Someone for whom the people would have expected God to bless, right? Again, within sort of Jewish society at the time, there was often an assumption that blessings were a clear indication of God's, uh, of one's relationship with God. And conversely, troubles, difficulties, sorrows, sufferings, those sorts of things were an indication uh, of judgment upon God, right? You, you, you remember from other stories in the Gospels, the blind man, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? Uh, this man or his parents that he was born blind, right? So there was, this, there was an assumption that if you lived a, a good, blessed, wealthy life, that that was a sign that you were close to God and God was blessing you. If you lived a difficult, troubled, sorrowful life, that you were in fact being punished by God. And of course, Jesus um, confronts and rejects that view at multiple points in the Gospels because that is not the view of God that we have in the Bible. It's not the view of God that we have in the Old Testament. Yet, yet the Jews had, had sort of developed that view uh, by the time Jesus was born and began his ministry. So we have Jairus, and we have this man who would have been well-respected within society, and we learn that he has a daughter who is dying. And not only is she dying, but she is dying imminently. She is on death's door. Okay, and, and we, we see Jairus coming to Jesus. Presumably, Jairus has heard of Jesus, right? Jesus was well known. Uh, you, there would have been gossip and news and stories that had been passed around. Perhaps Jairus had heard of this, this, uh, this man who is going around Israel preaching and teaching with, with power and authority and casting out demons and performing miracles. And he's coming to Jesus as his last glimmer of hope to save his daughter, right? As a parent, if you are a parent, you can understand sort of doing anything and everything you can for the sake of your child, right? And so Jairus is coming to Jesus in the hopes that Jesus is able to save his daughter. 
And, uh, and, uh, and so that's, that's how we're introduced to Jairus and his daughter. Luke, Luke bothers to tell us that his daughter is actually 12 years of age. So as we continue, uh, we're going to continue with the second half of verse 42. As Jesus went, the, the people pressed around him. Now let's pause there for a second. It's interesting that Luke draws our attention to that fact, right? Jesus is in a thick crowd of people. It's elbow to elbow. They're, they're jostling for room. The, the people are pressing around him. And that's going to become important as we continue on in the story. So verse uh, 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent... All of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. All right, so what we see here, now we're introduced to another person, to this woman who's had the discharge of blood for 12 years. Notice there's a, there's a similarity there. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive... This woman has suffered with this affliction. And there's, there's a number of reasons why this woman in particular would have been at the, the bottom of the social ladder, the bottom of, of the food chain, the bottom of the pecking order. Right? And there's at least three reasons why this woman would have been considered at the bottom of the uh, social ladder. For one, she was a woman. Right? And within that culture, within that society, women were not respected or viewed uh, very positively. Women could not give testimony in court because their, their testimony was not considered reliable. Many other Jewish uh, teachers and rabbis would not even speak to women because they considered women not able to, to be taught. And so it wasn't worth their time to even speak to women. Uh, and of course, what we see throughout the Gospels is Jesus acting very differently. He, he does not treat women in that way. He, he speaks with them. He interacts with them. He values them and dignifies them, right? And yet, that was the culture and the society. That was the beliefs at the time, okay? So within the, the, the people, within the crowd, that's how they would have viewed this woman. Furthermore, she has this discharge of blood. And this is not her, her sort of monthly menstrual period. This is a, a continuous flow of blood. So if you look back at the book of Leviticus and you sort of see that the, the ritual uh, laws about uh, ritual purity and cleanness and uncleanness, what you would have seen is that the, the normal men menstrual monthly period would have made a woman unclean for, for a short period of time, but then there were sort of prescriptions for how to deal with that, how to, how to remove the uncleanness. For this woman, um, none of that is available to her because this is a continual flow of blood. She has been ritually unclean for 12 years. Now, what that means is that anything she touches becomes unclean. If she touches a chair, if she, touches a, if she lies in a bed, it becomes unclean. Furthermore, if anyone sits in the chair after her, they become unclean. If anyone lies in the bed after her, they become unclean. Right? That's all laid out in the book of Leviticus. Furthermore, because she's ritually unclean, she is now isolated from the temple. She does not have access to the temple, right? Being ritually unclean meant that she was not allowed to enter into the place where the presence of God was. So she would have been socially ostracized because of her uncleanness. People would have wanted to avoid her to avoid becoming unclean themselves. Furthermore, she's, she's separated from the presence of God. So she's really isolated both from all of humanity, from, from her community, and from God. 
Furthermore, she was probably either unmarried or divorced. Given what Leviticus says about a woman in her condition, if she was married, she would not have been able to have sex with her husband for 12 years, which in that culture would have been grounds for divorce. And so she is in a desperate situation. She's, she's either unmarried or divorced. And for a woman in that culture at that time to be unmarried or divorced would have been a desperate situation. There were very few opportunities for women in that culture to provide for themselves. And in fact, one of the few ways for a woman in that situation to provide for themselves would have been to engage in prostitution. And if you flip back to chapter 7, you'll see, in fact, the story of a woman uh, who was a prostitute whom Jesus interacts uh, over the table of a Pharisee. And yet because of her condition, even that is not available to her as an option. So what we also learn, what Luke tells us, is that she has spent her whole living Right? She has spent everything she has. She is in complete poverty. She is totally destitute. And she has no way of providing for herself. She's isolated from everyone around her. She's separated from the presence of God. And that's to say nothing of the physical discomfort of dealing with a continuous flow of blood at a time and in a culture in which they didn't have things like running water, indoor plumbing, the normal feminine hygiene products, right? Imagine how difficult her life was. She was essentially as good as dead, right? In every meaningful way, separated from her community, separated from God, in desperate poverty, experiencing a debilitating physical condition without any resort. This woman is as good as dead. And that's what Luke tells us about her. So let's continue on with verse 44. <clears throat> she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in around you. Now, of course, anytime there's something dumb to say, it's Peter who says it, right? Within the Gospels, Peter is sort of the, the appointed one who's going to say something dumb to Jesus. Uh, and then Jesus, of course, rebukes him, right? But in this particular case, we can actually empathize with Peter, right? What, what Peter says here is not that unreasonable. In fact, Luke himself has told us, as I pointed out in, in verse 42, that the crowds were pe pressing around Jesus. Jesus is asking an odd question, and Peter quite naturally responds, right? So, so we may all laugh, right? We may think, you know, if I were, if I were in, in Peter's shoes, I would never say that. Maybe that's true, but you certainly would have been thinking it, right? So, so uh, let's, let's all sort of take a dose of humility and recognize Peter as the one who sort of says what's always on our minds, but we're not, uh, we, we don't have the courage to say it. So Peter points out the fact that the, the crowds are thick around Jesus, that, that what does it even mean to say who touched me? Everyone has touched him. And of course, that's not what Jesus means, right? Jesus doesn't just mean someone sort of brushing up or bumping against him in, in, the, in the sort of process of, of following Jairus to his house. Jesus means someone has touched him with intentionality. Uh, 
and he has felt power go out of him. And what's interesting, notice in verse 44, um, sorry, verse 45, everyone denies it. Everyone denies it, presumably including the woman, right? When Jesus first asks the question, everyone denies it. And perhaps at that moment, the woman assumed that she could slip away, right? Because everyone was jostling around Jesus. Presumably, many people had touched Jesus. Presumably, she could slip away unseen, unknown, and simply disappear, right? So she denies it. She denies touching Jesus. And yet Jesus continues, right? Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me, Uh, Sorry, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So notice this woman recognizes when Jesus asked the question a second time, she recognizes that Jesus isn't just asking a generic question of who brushed into him, that he knows what has happened to her, right? He knows that power has gone out of him to heal someone. And if he knows that much, then surely he actually knows who this is, right? I don't think Jesus is genuinely unclear or uncertain about what had happened and to whom it had happened. In fact, the, the, the woman herself seems to indicate, right, verse 47, it says, uh, when the woman saw that she was not hidden. I think what's going on here, I think Jesus asking these questions is very similar to God in Genesis chapter 3, when he shows up and he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And then Did you eat from the tree of which I told you not to? God wasn't confused. God knew. God knew what Adam and Eve had done. And then in Genesis 4, when God says to Cain, where is your brother? God knew what had happened to Abel. God knew what Cain had done. God was inviting Adam and inviting Cain to come to him and to confess what he already knew. Which, as a side point, that's, that's all we're ever doing when we confess our sins to, to God, right? We're, all, we're, we're simply telling him what, we all, what he already knows. God is not surprised by any of our sins. And I think that's what's going on here. I don't think Jesus is genuinely uncertain. I think he is giving this woman an opportunity to come into the public and to say what has happened to him. Now, I think it's worth asking ourselves why Jesus does this. Why does he draw this woman out into the public, right? I think uh, many of us, if the surveys are to be believed, are terrified of public speaking. In fact, when you look at the studies and the surveys, uh, public speaking is, is more frightening than death uh, for most people, which means that at any given moment, um, someone would rather be dead than speaking in public. Uh, so we're sort of terrified of, of that sort of attention and, and speaking in public. And furthermore, right, this is a woman with a very personal, intimate, embarrassing condition. Not only that, but she is also ritually unclean. 
And what has Luke told us? Luke has told us that there is a thick crowd and that everyone is elbow to elbow. I want you to think about how many people from the outskirts of the crowd to Jesus that woman had to touch in order to get to Jesus. Every single one of those people, according to the law, is now ritually unclean. Every single one of those people now needs to isolate themselves from God. They do not have access to the temple until they become ritually clean. Right? We've all been through a pandemic. We sort of understand something of what that's like, right? You remember in the early uh, stage of the pandemic when we were all in lockdown, but you could still go to the grocery store. And I remember being in the grocery store, you know, and you got your mask on and you get like a fleck of dust or something in your throat. And you're, you know, you're thinking to yourself, please don't cough, please don't cough, please don't cough. Right? But you can't help it, and so you cough, and then you look around, and you hope no one saw you, and you, know, you want to say, like, it's, it's okay, it's just allergies, it's just a piece of dust or whatever. Um, or someone else coughs in, in the aisle next, you know, in, in, the, in the same aisle, and you, like, all of a sudden remember that you have to go get something at the other aisle. Um, right? We all sort of understand that, or perhaps when things were opening up a little bit more, and we were back in church or back in social gatherings, and you go, uh, and, and then you find out perhaps the next day that you've tested positive, right? And you all of a sudden realize I have to call everyone who is there and let them know I've tested positive, which means they've been exposed, which means they have to either get tested or quarantine, so on and so forth, right? Like we understand that the shame and the inconvenience and the, and the fear at having exposed people, Right? We understand what that's like. And, and this woman lived in a culture in which they didn't just experience that during the periods of, of a pandemic. That was their entire way of life was oriented around ritual purity and impurity and trying to remain clean and not becoming unclean. And this woman has now exposed so many of them to her uncleanness. And furthermore, she touched the rabbi. Right, A woman, an unclean woman, touched a rabbi, which in that culture would have been horrible uh, and, and horrifying. And we see, right, she comes to Jesus. Notice what it says. Uh, it says in verse um, 47, falling down before him in the presence of all the people, right? Luke draws our attention to the fact that everyone is watching. Everyone sees, everyone knows what's happening says, uh, falling down before him in the presence of all the people. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, and the woman saw that she was not hidden and she came trembling, right? Trembling. She was afraid. That's understandable. We understand that. We understand why that was the case. And we see that, it ha that, that Jesus is, is drawing her out in front of all of the people. And... Uh, and again, right, I want us to return to that question. Why did Jesus do this? He could have let her go. He could have let her slip away quietly. He could have known what had happened and just let her go on her way. No one else would have had to know. No one else would have had to consider themselves ritually unclean. She could have gone about her way without having the attention drawn to her? And we're going to answer that question 
uh, when we come to the end. But for now, think about that. Why is Jesus doing this? This is an extremely painful, embarrassing, terrifying experience for this woman that Jesus is subjecting her to by calling her out in front of everyone. Well, let's continue. Uh, we're at verse 48. <clears throat> and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. So what we see here is that Jairus has now heard what he feared he would hear, that his daughter is dead. And you can imagine if you were Jairus, you've come to Jesus. He's your last hope. He's consented to come to your house. You're, you're, you, you're allowing yourself to hope that maybe this is the answer. And then Jesus pauses and has this bizarre interaction with this woman. And although she was as good as dead, right? She lived with this condition for 12 years. Presumably she could have lived with this condition for just 12 more minutes, right? And yet Jesus stops not realizing the urgency that Jairus is in, right? Or at least that's perhaps and probably how Jairus felt, right? You can, you can imagine Jairus trying to be respectful and yet feeling desperate and impatient and wanting to get along. And then he hears what he's been dreading, that his daughter is dead. And Jesus, right? Jesus says to Jairus, um, he says, uh, I keep losing my place here. Um, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, notice that there's, uh, what he says to Jairus is very similar to what he says to the woman in verse 48, right? In, the, in verse 48, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, within the Greek, faith and believe are the same root. It's essentially the same word, right? And so what, what Jesus is saying to Jairus is what he has said to the woman, right? He said to the woman, your faith has made you well. To Jairus, he says, have faith and it will be well, right? Have faith and your daughter will be well. What he's saying to Jairus is, you've seen what I just did with the woman, have faith, trust that I can heal your daughter as well or raise her from the dead, right? And of course, raising someone from the dead is different from healing them. Uh, we know that. Jairus would have known that as well. So it's still a fairly big, uh, uh, it's, it's a big request that Jesus is making of Jairus. But he's saying, look, you've seen what I did to the woman. Have faith uh, and your daughter will be well. And, uh, and so, uh, so they, they proceed on, they continue on and, uh, and we pick it up in verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to, uh, to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. <clears throat> and all were weeping, uh, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, uh, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one about what had happened. Now notice, up until this point, the situation with Jairus had been extremely public, 
right? The whole crowd knew what was happening. The whole crowd was going with Jesus to Jairus' house, right? There was no, there was no confusion. There was no uh, sort of uncertainty. Everyone knew what was happening. And yet when they get to Jairus' house, Jesus only takes three of his apostles with him and the parents. And after the fact, he explicitly tells the parents not to say anything about it, right? The, 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 the situation with Jairus began in public, but it ends in private, right? Jesus is doing everything he can to, to keep the miracle a secret. In fact, uh, Jesus says, right, that there's mourners outside the house when Jesus arrives. Um, and he says, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, it, I think it's worth asking, why would Jesus say that? I think from, from the, the, what we read in, in the rest of the passage, Luke wants us to understand that she really was dead, that Jesus really did raise her from the dead. But Jesus is using a euphemism for death, namely sleep. This is a, a euphemism that uh, the Apostle Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11, right? So he's using a euphemism, but he's telling them that, that she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they're so convinced that she's actually dead that they actually mock him. They laugh at him for saying that. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why does Jesus make that comment? Why does Luke include that comment in his story? I think what's going on here is that Jesus knows he's going to go into that room. And in a few minutes, that girl is going to come out of that room alive. And if you're, if you're part of the crowd, if you're part of the people that are there, you have two, uh, two possible interpretations of that event, right? You can either believe that you were mistaken about her being dead, or you can believe that a dead girl was raised to life. And for whatever reason, Jesus seems to, to provide a reason for the crowd in thinking the first, in thinking that they were mistaken uh, about whether or not the little girl was dead. And what we see here between that and, and what he says to the parents and the fact that he only takes the apostle, uh, the three apostles, is that Jesus is doing everything he can to keep this private, to keep this quiet, not to make it uh, public and, uh, and well-known. And I think we need to ask ourselves, right, why does Jesus treat this little girl so differently than the woman, right? This little girl's situation began in public with Jairus coming to Jesus in the crowd and the whole crowd going to Jairus' house, but it ends in private. The woman's miracle begins in private. She comes to Jesus without anyone knowing. She touches him privately. She could have slipped away privately, but it ends in public, right? Why does Jesus treat these two women very, very differently? We're going to answer that in just a second, but before we do, what I want you to see, there are a few things I want you to see, and the first is that for both of them, for both of these two uh, individuals, Access to Jesus' saving power was the same. For both of them, it was faith. It didn't matter that Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. It didn't matter that he was probably wealthy. It didn't matter that he probably was well-respected within society. Right? None of that was the basis 
on which Jesus performed a miracle and saved his daughter. It was only on the basis of his faith. Similarly for the woman, right? It was her faith that gave her access to Jesus' love and healing power, right? Every single one of us comes to Jesus on an equal playing field, whether we are rich or poor, old or young, whether we are righteous or unrighteous, all of us come to Jesus on an equal playing field. We all are in need of his forgiveness and the access to a relationship with Jesus is simply through faith. That's it, right? So we don't get to have pride in who we are and what we've accomplished and, 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 and how we conduct ourselves, right? We don't get to say, well, I earned this. I deserve this. Jesus is lucky to have me, right? Similarly, we don't have to say the opposite, right? Jesus loves us, right? We don't need to be ashamed. We are invited into a relationship with him simply on the basis of faith, right? All of the sort of distinctions that, that the world, that the culture makes between the wealthy and the powerful and the rich and the good looking and the successful and the poor and the weak and the unsuccessful, right? Those don't matter to Jesus. If you have faith, if you trust in him, he loves you, he accepts you, and he will save you. And so on the one hand, they're very similar, right? On the one hand, their access to Jesus' saving power is identical. And yet on the other hand, as we've seen, Jesus treats them very differently. And the reason, I think, is because what these two women needed was very, very different. This little girl, she didn't need to be a public spectacle. She didn't need everyone in the community looking at her, poking her, prodding her, talking to her about what it was like, what happened to be dead and then to be raised from the dead. What she needed was her parents and some food. And that's what Jesus gives her. He gives her her parents. He tells the parents to give her some food. Right? That's what a 12-year-old girl needed. She didn't need it public recognition or acclamation. And similarly, Jairus, right? Jairus didn't need to be raised in the social ladder, right? He didn't need people looking at him and saying, wow, what, what incredible faith you must have had. How blessed you were by God that he raised your daughter from the dead. How good your relationship must be with him, right? That's not what Jairus needed, right? That could have tempted him to pride, to arrogance, it would have further perpetuated false notions about God, right? What Jairus and his daughter needed was simply to have physical life restored and nothing else. And that's what Jesus gave them. This woman, on the other hand, needed something very, very different. Her physical ailment was the source of her problem, but it wasn't the primary or even the most significant aspect of her problems. Her real problems were the social and communal isolation that she experienced and her separation from God and from access to God in the temple, right? Her ritual uncleanness. And you can, you can understand that because of the nature of her malady, no one was going to verify when she told them she had been healed, 
right? No one was going to check to make sure. If, if you knew a woman who had been sick for 12 years, who had gone to every single doctor she could, and none of them had been able to, to, to give her any help, and then she said, she claimed that she had been miraculously healed, and you had no way to verify it, would you believe her? Most people in that culture and society probably wouldn't have. And I think probably most of us would also have been skeptical. Right? She needed Jesus to publicly vindicate her in front of everyone. So that everyone would know that she was not cursed by God. That her malady was not a sign of displeasure or disfavor. That she had faith and that she was fully and completely healed. Jesus, as painful as it was to bring her into the public, as painful as it must have been, as terrifying as it must have been for her, gave her exactly what she needed. He gave her the physical healing, and he restored her relationship in the community, and he restored her relationship with God. And he vindicated her publicly, dignifying her in a way that she could have never done for herself. And so as you think about the question, why does Jesus treat me differently? It's because he loves you the same. It's not that he loves you less or more than anyone else. He treats you differently because he knows that you are an individual, that you have particular needs and wants and desires, right? That he wants to shape you into a particular person. He wants to take care of you in a particular way, right? Jesus doesn't just love us generally or generically. Jesus loves us specifically as individuals, as people, and he treats us according to that fact, right? Jesus treats us differently because he loves us the same. And if we have faith in him, we have access to his saving power. We have access to his love. We have access to a relationship with him. So as you consider, as you look around, as you think about your life and you're tempted to compare it to other people's lives, to other Christians' lives, whether for good or for ill, remind yourself of this story that Jesus gives us everything that we need, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's confusing, when we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. Trust that he loves you and is giving you exactly what you need. And I know that's hard. We need uh, his help in believing that. And so let me pray that he would help us to believe that. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would give us hearts to believe uh, that you do love us, uh, that you love us simply on the basis of faith. Uh, and in fact, it's even, it's a faith that you yourself give to us, uh, that we are privileged to be your children, um, to be loved by you, to be saved by you. And I pray that you would help us to, to remember that you love us all uh, that you love us uh, and you treat us differently because you love us, uh, that we would not be tempted to, to pride uh, or resentment or bitterness or anger or, or ungratefulness, 
uh, or anything else, but that we would trust you uh, in every situation. And we pray this in your name. Amen.